All right, so we are going to begin a study on Christology or the study of Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to be diving for the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine weeks at least, or eight weeks at least, potentially nine, into a study of Christology, a study of Jesus and the theology of Jesus Christ. Last year, last year we began our study of theology and we spent many months looking at a few topics. We looked at the purpose, composition, and the reliability of Scripture. We started with the reliability of the Word of God because in order to study the Word of God, you have to know that it's reliable, right? And so that's what we talked about, the reliability of the Word of God. We talked about different translations, the translation process, how this Bible of ours or of God's was composed by its authors, the different languages used, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and the translation process based off of that. Um, I've said it before, but there's some new faces, so I have no preference on, and we at the Salt Mine have no preference on version of Bible. You will see myself using ESV or New American Standard, and on Sunday morning, we use a lot of living. We use ESV. We even use, um, what's the one you used a couple weeks ago? Passion Translation, which is... Not a good translation for study. It's a good translation for kind of emotional responses, uh, learning about Scripture in a different way, perhaps. But for in-depth studying, I prefer something like the ESV or the New American Standard Version Bible, even the NIV to a lesser extent. And I talked about why in those lessons. And if you would like to listen to those lessons again... You can go to, that's another, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You can go to the saltminechurch.org, as you see here, and you can go to the podcasts, and there are, you'll have to go a ways back because we have all the Sunday morning lumped in, but they are way back, or you can download them on like Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, another thing I'd like to point out, on our website, so tonight you have a handout. Um, this is a condensed version of another handout we did last year with the creeds. If you go to this more tab on the saltminechurch.org, there's a tab that says Bible study notes. If you go to the Bible study notes, there are all of my notes, my presentations, and any handouts that were given um, and these ones aren't titled the best, but in the future, we will have them titled according to the date. These are titled according to the matching. It just says week 11. I think, I don't know how, is that how we titled the actual podcast? Okay. Yeah. So, but you can go to these and download all these resources, and they have, for instance, one of my favorite ones is the worldview summary, which we went over last year talking about all the different worldviews that are out there. 
And the creeds, which this is a condensed version, this handout I gave you, the definition of Chalcedon, is a condensed version of this handout where we discussed all the different creeds. There's the definition right there. So those resources are all available to you on the website um, that you can look at, you can dissect, you can store them with your other stuff. That's what we're going to look at in a few minutes. So we talked very intent, we, we talked in great detail about the composition of the Word of God, what it means, its purposes, its reliability, and its composition. Then, as we saw in that handout, we talked about the worldviews of humanity and kind of where humans throughout history have, have viewed the world that we live in, right? In order for us to understand things about the Bible and the universe and God, we need to understand our worldview, whether we're monotheistic, um, polytheistic, whether we, we practice things like, I'm just going to bring it up again because it's right there, existentialism, being a deist, being an atheist, um, n- being a nihilist, all these different things, relativist, um, help us to translate the people around us. Right? These aren't necessarily things that I believe any of us fall into these categories, but a lot of people in the world do, especially in our day and age where there's a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of crazy people. But one thing that we need to understand and we can take courage in, and this is something that the Bible teaches us, or take hope in rather, is that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything has existed as far as how people think and worldviews from the dawn of time, and that Song of Sol or not Song of Solomon, <laughs> Ecclesiastes talks about that idea that there's nothing new under the sun. All these worldviews and how people view the world, things like the transgender movement, things like uh, the atheism movement, these aren't new movements. They've been around since, or they were around when Jesus was walking on the earth, and they're going to be around until Jesus returns and finally puts an end to sin, finally, in the end. These will be around. Um, they might be a little bigger now because of things like the internet, but there's nothing new here. So we did discuss those in great detail. We talked about why people view things the way they do, kind of the background. We, talked, um, we also talked a lot about some of the movers and shakers of these worldviews, like Nietzsche and Freud and all those wonderful men who have just been enemies to the church. That was sarcastic. They are not wonderful. (laughs) They have been enemies to the church and how their viewpoints have impacted us in the church. Then we did a brief overview of church history and that there is a, um, I think that handout's there. Let me make sure it is. If not, I'll, yeah. We did a brief handout of church history where we went through all, or not all, but a, a kind of bird's eye view of what has happened within the church and the history of the church up until today, or up until the, the 1960s. There's, there's, more, there's a lot, stuff's happening a lot faster now, but this is, this is what we went up to Vatican II was our history that we did. And then we did an in-depth discussion of the creeds. We did an in-depth discussion of the heresies, which we will again revisit both of those tonight as we begin to talk about Christology. And then we spent a very long time talking about theology proper, 
which is the study of God himself. And we primarily focused on the attributes of God and the character of God, where week by week we went through the different attributes of God and the character of God. So if you were not able to be a part of any of these, those are all in the podcast, and you can download and listen to them at your leisure. So where are we going then? So we talked about the Bible, we talked about the world, we kind of did a bird's eye view of mankind, and why, so we talked about the Bible, we talked about man a little bit. There's more to talk about in terms of man, which we'll get to at a later date, but then we talked about God, and so now we're going to move to a discussion of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> which obviously, as Christians, it's in our name, Christ, Christians, is very important. The person of Jesus Christ is very important for us to understand who we are as Christians, the world that surrounds us, and the Bible as a whole, right? Without Jesus Christ, my dad sent a text out, I think, well, what did he actually say? Sorry, I'm just going to pull it up so we can read it. He said, if you get Jesus right, everything else is going to fall into place. And that is 100% correct. In fact, that is a, in its correct place, that is a biblical concept. What he actually just described is the idea of a keystone or a cornerstone, which we know that Jesus is described as a cornerstone throughout the Bible in several different places. So yes, he is the cornerstone. He is the keystone to our faith. He is the central figure of the Bible. He is the central figure of the universe. He is the most important thing in the universe. So we are going to discuss the following ideas in regards to Jesus Christ. And tonight's going to be kind of a bird's eye overview of, of what we're going to be doing and a little bit of preparation work talking about creeds and heresies in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to first dive into his personhood, his personhood. Then we're going to look at his purposes, his life, his death and resurrection, and then his future plans. So these areas are kind of the, 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 the main points of who Jesus is, right? We have to talk about his person. This is the area, and we'll talk about this later, that most people get Jesus wrong, is talking about his personhood. And we're going to look at, if we have time tonight, uh, we're going to do kind of a, we're going to dissect the Mormon church's beliefs on Jesus Christ to show how little aspects, if you get little things wrong about Jesus' personhood, it can be really bad for the rest of our theology. Then we're going to talk about his purposes, why Jesus came to this earth, what he has done, and that's going to be played out in his life, and then, of course, his death and resurrection, and then his future plans, which we're talking a little bit about on Sunday in Revelation and the millennium and things like that. Those are all core to who Jesus is, to his person, and to what he will accomplish. So the first thing I'd like to do, and I don't have the slide for it because it's long, we're going to look at, and we're not going to do it in depth, it's more to set the tone for our study. Let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 13. Hebrews 1, 1 through 13. 
Hebrews is a wonderful book if you want to study Jesus Christ because it's basically a book that says, look at all these great people. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. So it's a good place for us to start our discussion of Christology, the study of Christ, the study of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 13, and again, I am reading from the ESV translation. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's kind of important. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Huh. So he's upholding the entire universe by his power. That seems significant. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Clear answer is none of the angels. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end." So obviously this is a very intense, glorious view of Jesus Christ. Very clearly the author of Hebrews has a high Christology, a high view of Jesus. He views Jesus as God. In fact, he addresses him as God in several places. Um, and there's a lot of things that we could dissect with this. Like I said, we're not going to go into too much depth. The interesting thing, this is just a side note that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. Well, it does, but in verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Guess who he did say that to? Not to angels. He said that to David. Just an interesting little thing. So, this is to set the stage for us. This is to set the tone for us as we talk about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this high and glorious view of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews wants us to be clear that he is something much better than anything else that has been created. 
because things were created by him. He upholds the universe by his own hand. He is God himself, ultimately. <clears throat> so, we're going to begin next week talking about the humanity of Christ because we're going to discuss three main areas. The humanity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, and then the third most important part, how these two natures are united within the person of Christ. <clears throat> we are going to talk about, though, the three aspects of his person, humanity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, and how these two natures are united within the person of Christ. So, the most important part, this is the one takeaway that you should get from our entire study. This line right here up at the top, the main point, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. This is the most foundational point, not only in our theology of Christ, I know that's what I have there, but our most foundational point within our theology, period. The fact that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God within one person. This is the most debated topic in Christianity. Half the councils that we have talked about within our church history were debating this very topic. So, it's important for us to get it right then. It's important for us to understand. That's why we're going to go over the heresies again tonight, and we're going to go over that definition of Chalcedon, which goes over this and kind of seeks to, to pin down exactly what this means. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, in one person, and will be so forever. <clears throat> While this is the most foundational point for us as Christians, and I, this isn't just evangelical Christians, this is Reformed Christians, this is the Catholic Church, this is the Orthodox Church, everything in mainline Christianity hinges on this point, the fact that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man within one person, right? Every major Christian religion holds to this point. Where they don't, they become Christian cults. So as soon as they delineate from this, they become what's called a Christian cult. The Christian cults, the big three in the United States, and I mean, they're worldwide, but Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, um, there's a few others. Those are the big three, though, that because they delineate on the point that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, in one person, and will be so forever. They are not a part of that mainline Christianity as I was talking about before. <clears throat> Without this point, the whole of our faith, the whole of the Christian faith, totally collapses. And you're going to see that as we look at the Mormon tenets of faith in terms of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm picking on them because they're kind of the easiest one to dissect, and they have it very clearly laid out, um, whereas some of the other ones aren't as clear. This is also why when we talk about other Christian religions like Catholics, Orthodox, we're on the same team as them. We are not... Um, I believe most Catholics, there's going to be as many Catholics in heaven as there are going to be evangelical Christians, right? Because they believe this. You can believe what you want about, well, 
never mind. You can't believe what you want about Mary. <laughs> That's, but they have some weird stuff about Mary and the Pope and different things like that and the uh, indulgences and all their weird stuff, which a lot of people hold on to. But it's not foundational stuff. Those are bubble issues where the important issues, like Jesus being fully God and fully man, they're, hold, they're strict on, they hold to, and they hold firm on. So we can trust that they believe that Jesus Christ they worship is the same one that we worship. That makes sense? It was a little confusing the way I said it there, but I hope to, to make it clear that this is something, this is a universal Catholic belief, and by Catholic, I mean little c, everyone in the church believes this point. <clears throat> it cannot be understated how important this point is, and as we discuss Christology, we will see exactly why, um, because you can't really have salvation if this point is not true. Otherwise, it's something else, and the way that salvation is laid out in the Bible does not work without Jesus being fully God and fully man. Now, you're going to hear me refer to Jesus a lot as the God-man. That's one way that we, we kind of use that wording to illustrate this point. We call Jesus the God-man. He's something different. He's not God. Well, he is God. He is man. He is the God-man. Like God in every way and like us in every way. And why we need to go over the heresies is because it is so easy. Even in me speaking the words, even though I studied this for years in college, it still is so easy to, to speak words that are incorrect. It's so easy to speak things that are heretical because, you know, even saying like Jesus is like, Jesus Christ is like God in this way and like, no, Jesus is God in this way and is man. He's fully man and fully God. So we're going to talk about the heresies to really help us to uh, stay on track in terms of what we're talking about. The first heresy, and this one we didn't get to talk about last time, is called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. And these are all named after mostly Roman um, Christians who, and, and part of it, you have, to, you have to give a little bit of, of uh, not wiggle room, but, but a little bit of grace to some of these men, because a lot of these men, they were just trying to figure it out, because this stuff is really hard. It is, so there's two big paradoxes in Scripture there's the Trinity, and there's this one, God being, or Jesus being fully God and fully man. So they were trying to figure it out. Okay, so we, we, as much as they were heretics and they caused a lot of trouble, they were trying to figure it out. So I'm not giving them like grace, like, oh, what they did was okay, but we just need to understand this stuff is really hard, it's very complicated, and they were trying to figure it out. They weren't trying to lead people astray, is what I'm trying to say. They weren't trying to create a cult. They were trying to figure it out in the terms that with, within the church itself. In fact, many of these men actually met within the councils and lended their aid to the councils. So, Apollinarianism is a heresy which proclaims that Jesus Christ had a human body, but not a human mind. 
So basically what that means is Jesus was, all Jesus was was God wearing human skin. So he took the form of a man and that's it. So everything that he did was God doing it just with a man's body. That's it. He was 100% God and 0% man outside of the fleshly body that he inhabited. Okay? Obviously, the, this idea was rejected by the church because what this results in is a Christ who is truly God, but not truly man. This Christ would not be able to accomplish the salvation set forth within the Bible. He would not be, as we're going to talk about, that high priest who can understand. He would not be able to be tempted. He would not, because in the Bible it says that God cannot be tempted. He would not be able to, um, there's a lot of things he would not be able to do. And that's what we're going to talk about when we talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why it was important that he was 100% human. In addition to being 100% God. That's right. He wouldn't be a sacrifice. He wouldn't be a worthy sacrifice. He wouldn't be any sacrifice because he would be God himself. He wouldn't be able to actually redeem mankind because it would be God doing it himself and it wouldn't be able... Yeah, we're going to talk about all those rules when we talk about the humanity. But yes, there's a lot that wouldn't be able to happen based on how Scripture presents salvation and justification. Jesus needs to be fully man and fully God. Opposite is true also. He can't just be 100% man because salvation has to come from God. There's, there's a lot of things going on there. But this obviously just does not work. He can't be just 100% God with human flesh on. The next is docetism, and we did talk about this one a little bit last year when we talked about the heresies. This is the ideology, this is the idea that Jesus' historical and bodily existence was kind of an illusion. So similar to an Apollinarianism where it's all God, Jesus has no flesh, but in this idea, Jesus has no humanity at all, and God's just projecting this image of Jesus onto the earth as an illusion. Yeah, like a ghost. Exactly. Which we obviously know in Scripture that that's not true. There's several areas where Jesus ate. He did things that only a human with flesh could do. And he had to suffer in his human form. Oh, that's another big reason why Apollinarism doesn't work, is Jesus had to suffer. If he was God, he wouldn't have been able to suffer. Because God can't do that based on our discussion of who God is and his attributes. So this idea in docetism that, <clears throat> that Jesus was just an illusion to fool, not even to deceive, but just, it, it just doesn't work, obviously. Um, the big kind of antagonist verse against this is the idea in John 1.14, the word became flesh. We know that Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. This one was obviously rejected very early within the church and the church councils, but still important to understand. Next is Arianism. 
And as I said, Arius was a Christian. He was a pastor who was, he just wanted to find the truth. And obviously he didn't quite understand and led some astray, but I, I genuinely don't believe it was intentional as some of the other, um, like, like Joseph Smith and those, those type of individuals. Arianism asserts that Jesus, as the Son of God, so as the second person of the Trinity, did not always exist, but was begotten by God the Father at a specific point in time. So basically, Jesus did not exist. It was just God and the Holy Spirit. And then in Mary, all of a sudden, God says, okay, I'm going to beget or create a new version of God or something else. And now Jesus comes on the scene. So Jesus' beginning was at his birth. This is very clearly not scriptural because even in John we have in the beginning was the word and that verbiage in the beginning doesn't just mean at the beginning of time but you know for all time he's been around as long as God is which is forever and ever both ways infinitely this would render Jesus to be a created creature distinct and subordinate to the father while still being considered a, a God the son um, this is the kind of main heresy that you see Mormonism um, and Jehovah's Witness use. Jesus kind of earned his godhood, as it were, and we'll look at it when we look at the actual points of Mormonism. And that's why that begotten word is very important. That begotten word is not something that happened at a point in time. It's something that is an infinite idea or an ideology. So it's not something that happened when Jesus was born, but it happened infinitely past, and some people is a constant ongoing thing. That's another discussion, though. Then we have Nestorianism. <clears throat> Nestorianism is that the human and divine natures were joined by will rather than by personhood. Joined by will rather than by personhood. So this is kind of a weird way to combine the two. Um, and it, it's mostly related to the idea that Jesus was um, not fully God or fully man, but kind of 50% and 50-50, something like that which obviously is not the case. Then we have monophysitism. Sorry, that one's a weird one. This is the belief that Jesus had only one nature, and it was a weird hybrid between God and man. So God and man came together, and then you had like a Superman, right? And that's not the case. It is 100% God and 100% man in 100% of a person. That's why it's a paradox. He does not. He is not a two hundred percent person. He's one hundred percent person with one hundred percent man and one hundred percent God in the same person. That's why it's difficult. As we're going through these, there's certain little verses that you can twist and take out of context to to kind of hit your point. Um, for instance. 
<clears throat> uh, where did it go? So in Hebrews, we just read this, Hebrews 1.4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels. So that word having become could be taken to mean, oh, at this point, Jesus became God. He earned it at this point. When that's not what that's talking about in any way. And we'll, like I said, we'll dive into what all those, that, that kind of means. Something did change. Something did happen when he was born of Mary. It's not like Jesus has been the, the fleshly form of Jesus. He took on flesh. That was an event that happened. And we're going to talk about exactly what that was. Before that, he was spirit. When we talk about this, it's a bit, we're, we're working like a pendulum. The pendulum goes this way and this way, right? And there's boundaries. And it's like we're narrowing in on who Jesus is and the person of Jesus. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're kind of setting the boundaries so that we don't, we, we stay in the middle. We stay true and we don't fall over there or over there. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we have to do with the person of Jesus, because as we can see, this is very challenging. It's hard to wrap our heads around, but it is so crucial and important to who we are as Christians. So um, I have it on the screen, but you have it here, the definition of Chalcedon. Now, out of all these heresies, the Christians of, this was, I didn't put the, 451. This was in 451 AD that uh, the definition of Chalcedon during the Council of Chalcedon. <clears throat> it, was a, it was a church council, so all the churches in Rome, Greece, Europe, all got together and like, look, this is what we're going to do because you'd have different sects and split-offs and they'd say, no, this is what all the churches believe based on Scripture. So based on this, we're going to just look over this briefly <clears throat> and you can kind of see as we look kind of the, the points that they're trying to make. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're stating their purpose here that because of church, through church history, we are going to unite with those Christians who have come before us and we are going to confess, we are going to state our belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. So they're saying, this same one, so Jesus Christ, is perfect in deity, 100% God, and the same one, Jesus Christ, is perfect in humanity, 100% man. The same one is true God and true man. That means he is not um, a fragment of God or a fragment of man. He is fully God and fully man. He is the fullness of God is within the person of Jesus Christ, as is the fullness of man, comprising a rational soul and a body. So he's not a ghost roaming around, and he's not just a bag of skin that God inhabits. He is his own unique rational soul and body. He is of the same essence, and we have the Greek word homosios, that's what essence is, 
as the Father according to his deity. So all the things that are true of God are also true of Jesus Christ, is what they're saying there. They are not different from one each other or one another in their essence. And the same one is of the same essence with us according to his humanity. Like us in all things except sin. And we're going to talk about that next week, why it was important for there to be the virgin birth. One of the big ways is that he wasn't fall under the curse of sin. He was begotten before the ages from the Father according to his deity. So he wasn't begotten when Mary birthed the child. He wasn't begotten then. He was begotten before the ages, before time, outside of time. But in the last days, for us and our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary. So they're affirming that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The bearer of God, that's a title for Mary within the New Testament, but it does not mean that Mary was divine. That's where Catholics get this wrong. It means something else. Theotokos is that word, the bearer of God, according to his humanity. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united unconfusedly, meaning they're not twisted up, they're fully unique and um, unconfusedly, meaning they're not twisted, they're, they're whole, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So they cannot be divided now. The distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurs together in one purpose, person and subsist, subsistence. Subsistence, huh? Oh, sorry. <clears throat> he is not separated or divided into two persons, but he is one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, and this is important here, and we're going to see this when we look at the Mormon definitions of this. <clears throat> this is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning. So they are saying, we affirm that all of the Bible speaks of Jesus in this way. And Jesus himself instructed us, and the council of fathers has handed the faith down to us. So we have three legs of the stool. We have prophecy, Jesus Christ himself, and how the church fathers have spoken and handled the, handed the faith down to us. Okay, So they are claiming that all this is scriptural and how the church fathers have interpreted it and how Jesus Christ has taught us. So when you actually like, it's, it's hard to break the heresies down because especially a lot of them, they're very academic. But when you break them down academically, they match up with all these lines. Exactly. That's exactly right. These are, uh, this is a distinct answer to the heresies that were arising within the church. The big kind of sty in the eye of Jewish people is, and I've, in Jewish theology specifically, especially modern Jewish theology, they cannot get over 
the fact that God became a man. They don't believe it. They don't understand it. It makes no sense to them. And I believe that is the stumbling block that is discussed in Romans. Is that? Yeah. That Paul dis- discusses the stumbling block that they just cannot get over the fact that Jesus, or that God, Yahweh, would become flesh. It makes no sense to them because God is holy and Jesus is not holy by putting on human flesh. So in Islam, they, they have a similar view. It's the Abrahamic view where there are no images allowed of Allah. And just in, in Hebrew, in Judaism as well, there's no images allowed of Yahweh. In fact, they don't even write his full name out. They write out the consonants. Well, there's only consonants in the Hebrew language, so that's kind of silly. But they only write out certain letters to prevent them from writing an image of God. So they just do not get this idea that he's God and man are combined in Jesus. And they still don't to this day. That's a big stumbling block for them. So yeah, this is weird for them. What do they believe the Messiah? They don't believe he's God. They believe he's a king. That's what they believe. She said, what do they believe the Messiah is? Modern Jewish theology does not believe that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, is, a, is God. They cannot understand that God himself steps down. Well, modern Jewish theology doesn't believe that there's an actual Messiah at all. So, in the, the Pharisees, true Jewish theology, yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, because it's, it's morphed into something else now. Yes. That's what they think now. That's what they think now. Um, no, they thought, they thought it was going to be um, a conquering king specifically. Um, the person, sorry, that most matched it would have been somebody like Judas Maccabeus or Zerubbabel. Or David, they wanted David 2.0, and actually David, not just David who washed people's feet. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, they just, but they cannot get over the fact that, that yeah, their Messiah is not God, um, even though it is, that's what, that's what he's saying. It's very clearly teaching that, and as we look at some of the scriptures, we're going to see that, yes, Jesus is supposed to be God. The Messiah is supposed to be God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what Isaiah teaches, etc. So we looked at that. We're going to look at now, and I want to go over this so we can... uh, And... Yeah. Logos, the word logos is from John 1. In the beginning was the word. That word, word, is logos. And that is very different from like word like this. It's specifically relating to the wisdom of God is the word that's used there. Okay, so this is actually from, as you can see, churchofjesuschristoflatterdaysaints.org. So this is their actual website. I'm not making this stuff up. It's not hearsay. This is an excerpt from an address to Harvard Divinity School by Robert Millett, who is the former dean of religious education at BYU. So this is what they believe about Jesus Christ. 
Okay, Later-day Saints or Latter-day Saints are Christians on the basis of our doctrine, our defined relationship to Christ, our patterns of worship, and our way of life. Even that's a red flag right away, because why are we Christians? We're Christians because of what Jesus Christ did, period. And you're going to see that here. What do we believe about Christ? We believe Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son in the flesh. Okay, sounds good from here. We accept the prophetic declarations in the Old Testament that refer directly and powerfully to the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of all humankind. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the fulfillment of those prophecies. All right, no problems with that so far. We believe the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament to be historical and truthful. All right, we do as well. For us, the Jesus of history is indeed the Christ of faith. Okay, that's a little weird way to put it, but right? While we do not believe the Bible to be inerrant. Oh, that's a big one. While we do not believe the Bible to be inerrant. So that means they do not believe that this word of God is the word of God. We believe that this word of God is perfect. It is complete. It is whole. It is holy. It is the very words of God. They do not. Complete or the final word of God. Oh. Hmm. So, so my problem is right away. If you undermine this, what happens? No, what happens? If this is undermined, what happens? Why are we here if this doesn't matter? We're wasting our time, literally. If this is not inerrant, if Jesus Christ didn't do it, if this isn't 100% the words of God, why are we here? We shouldn't be here because we would be wasting our time. So, complete or final word, we accept the essential details of the Gospels and more particularly the divine witness of those men who walked and talked with him or were mentored by his chosen apostles. So they're essentially saying they are going to pick and choose what they think is truth and what they think is accurate. Hmm. Sounds fishy. We believe that he was born of a virgin, Mary, in Bethlehem of Judea, in what has come to be known as the meridian of time, the central point in salvation history. From his mother Mary, Jesus inherited mortality. Hmm, that's a weird way to put it. The capacity to feel the frustrations and ills of this world, including the capacity to die. There's a lot there that they say with subtext in how they believe about who Jesus is. We believe that Jesus was fully human and that he was subject to sickness, to pain, and to temptation. While that's true, his full humanity, he was subject to temptation. We're going to talk about why it looks very different than what they think when we talk about the humanity of Jesus. Because Jesus... Even though he was tempted to sin, he had no capacity to sin. And we'll talk about why that's important next week or the week after. <laughs> we believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Father, and as such inherited 
powers of godhood and divinity from him, his father, including immortality, the capacity to live forever. All right. So just in that alone, they are very clearly separating Jesus from God the Father. They are two separate beings in this theology. He inherited powers of godhood. Godhood. So their version of God is nothing more than a superhero. But yeah, he inherited godhood, the powers of godhood, including immortality, the capacity to live forever. That is like... So Jesus living forever, that's just an interesting thing because the Bible that we believe and teach teaches us, one, we are all going to live forever because souls are eternal by our theology and by Christian theology in general. You either live forever in the lake of fire, in punishment, or you live forever in heaven because you accepted the free gift of salvation. But... Only Jesus, who was born of God, inherited these powers of living forever. Very strange. While he walked the dusty road of Palestine as a man, he possessed the powers of a god and ministered as one having authority, including power over the elements and even power over life and death. Okay. There's a very clear distinction between how we believe Jesus accomplished these miracles and how they believe Jesus accomplished these miracles. We are of the belief and based on scriptural teaching that Jesus did not use his godhood to achieve these miracles, but the power of the Holy Spirit he harnessed through his humanness to achieve these miracles, which is, as we're taught in the New Testament, is something believers have access to as well, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, through us to accomplish his will. Again, we'll talk more about that as we dive into it, but in their version of the story, God, he, he walked along as a superhero doing amazing things because he was God or something strange like that. We believe Jesus performed miracles, including granting sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, life to some who had died, and forgiveness to those, who, to those steeped in sin. We believe the New Testament accounts of healings and nature miracles and the cleansing of human souls to be authentic and real. <clears throat> it's interesting, though, this is why theology is so important. Theology, not just the idea, but having a theologic, having a logic that per pervades your entire belief system. If you believe that Jesus, as this weird superhero thing, had the ability to forgive sin, that is, presents lots of problems for all the beliefs that you had beforehand. Because if Jesus can forgive sin, there's only one person that can forgive sin, the person who's the judge and arbiter of sin, which is God himself. So that's why when Jesus says to the paralytic who was lowered in the roof, I forgive your sins, the Pharisees weren't mad that he was healing the man. The Pharisees were mad that he said, I forgive your sin, because according to them, he was blasphemous in that moment because he was taking the place that only God has. That's why that was so important. That's why the Pharisees were mad at him, not because of his preaching, in fact, they loved his preaching. Not because of his healing. They loved his healing because he was helping people. They did not like the fact that he was claiming to be God. 
there's more there, of course. I'm not just boiling it down to just that. But, but even that, his response to them wasn't in anger because they were right. Mm-hmm. They were right to be angry about that because that position is only for God. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm him. Yeah. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't affirm it. He just says, yes. I'm him. He doesn't even say I'm him. He's just, yep, that's it. That's right. This is an interesting point here. We believe that Jesus taught his gospel. That's an interesting way to put it. The glad tidings or good news that salvation had come to earth through him in order that people might more clearly understand both their relationship to God their Father and their responsibility to each other. That was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something else. Relationship to God the Father and their responsibility to each other, that's... Um, that, if you're going to boil the gospel down to those two words, you've got a real problem because that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus selected leaders, invested them with authority, and organized a church. We maintain that the church of Jesus Christ was established, as the Apostle Paul later wrote, for the perfection and unity of the saints. Yes and no. Yes, Jesus selected these, but did he select them to be leaders? Eh, not necessarily. He selected them because they would follow him. He called them. That's very different. And no, he did not set forth this organized church that the Mormons believe is the truth. They, he sets forth something very different. We believe that Jesus' teachings and his own matchless and perfect life provide a pattern for men and women to live by and that we must emulate that pattern as best we can to find true happiness and fulfillment in this life. Wow. As best we can. That's, this is full of a lot of hopelessness, a lot of just despair. <laughs> we must emulate it as best we can. Great. Go die on a cross. <laughs> What? Oh, it's 100% works. And you're going to see it. You're going to see that right here, this next one. We believe Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane and that he submitted to a cruel death on the cross of Calvary, all as a willing sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for our sins, which in their theology is actually impossible. That offering is made efficacious, meaning it is effective as we exercise faith and trust in him. Oh boy, that's rough. So basically what they're saying there is that the offering that Jesus presented is only effective as we exercise our faith and trust in him. Yep. Repent of our sins, are baptized by immersion as a symbol of our acceptance of his death, burial, and rise to newness of life, and receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost. That's a big long list that I don't see anywhere in the Bible. Oh, it's not. It's in there, Nephi. <laughs> it's not in the actual Bible. While no one of us can comprehend how and in what manner one person can take upon himself the effects of the sins of another. So this is a big problem here. They admit their theology is flawed because they say, while no one of us can comprehend how and in what manner one person can take upon himself the effects of the sins of another. Um, that's, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. How and in what manner. 
one person, Jesus Christ, can take upon the effects of the sins of another. Now, interesting, they say, or even more mysteriously, the sins of all men and women. Yes, it's not a mystery. He was able to do it because he was fully God and fully man, and that's the only way he was able to do it. We accept and glory in the transcendent reality that Christ remits our sins through his suffering. We know it is true because we have experienced it personally. That's not anywhere in the Bible, that experience word. It's just not how Scripture teaches us. We know it because God said it, because of truth, because it's been laid down before the foundation of the world. Further, we believe that he died, was buried, and rose from the dead, and that his resurrection was a physical reality. We do believe that. We believe that the effects of his rise from the tomb pass upon all men and women. That's a weird way to put it. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. While yes, we believe that's true, I don't understand this whole tomb passing upon men and women, the effects of the rise of the tomb. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretext or proof text. We do not believe that we can either overcome the flesh or gain eternal reward through our own unaided efforts. Okay, so they lay it out very clearly. They don't believe that they can overcome flesh or gain eternal reward through their own unaided efforts. We must work to our limits and then rely upon the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy One of Israel to see us through the struggles of life and into eternal life. We must work to our limits and then rely on the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy One of Israel. Huh. Uh, their Holy Spirit's very weird. But in this point, the whole point of salvation, this is, this is how they view salvation. You work to your limit, and then you hope that Jesus Christ is merciful on you. That's it. That sounds... Mm. And of course, they have their Book of Mormon ideology. We believe that while human works are necessary, including exercising faith in Christ, repenting of our sins, receiving the sacraments or ordinance of salvation, and rendering Christian service to our neighbors, they are not sufficient to salvation. Obviously, that's a clear delineation from what uh, mainline Christians believe, because we do not believe that human works are necessary in any way. In fact, as soon as you add them in, it becomes something other than salvation, which is what we have here. We believe that our discipleship ought to be evident in the way we live our lives. See, they sandwich it, all this junk and crap in between, oh, nice little statements. Exactly. If somebody doesn't realize it or know it, they fall right into it. It does. It sounds very Christian. It sounds great. And then they follow it up. He has a big, lengthy discussion of why they're right and we're wrong as Christians. Um, the big difference, or the big ideology is they, they believe that, obviously, Joseph Smith had a vision. That is the beginning of, they say it there, beginning of revelation of God in our day. So, 
that is the clear difference. But what you can see in these points is somebody who, instead of taking the idea of the incarnation, which is what the, the idea of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, is what we call the incarnation. Okay, they take the incarnation and instead of accepting it in faith, which faith, my definition of faith, which is what we hold to be true, is believing God is who he says he is and has done what he said he's done. Very simply. It's not something you work up. It's not something that involves works in any way. It is simply believing God. And that definition flows from Paul's treatment of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis. God said, sacrifice Isaac, and what did Abraham do? Abraham said, okay, I'm going to do it. And the point of faith is Abraham believed God when God said, what did God say to Abraham? I am going to make through Isaac a nation out of you. That was the specific statement God gave to Abraham, the promise he gave to Abraham. Abraham believed it so much that he said, I believe God is going to raise Isaac from the dead because he believed that God was going to fulfill his promise. That's faith. Accepting it as truth. Accepting God at taking God at his word. So we have a man, Joseph Smith, and, I, and I'm, I'm genuinely not meaning to pick on the Mormon faith. This is just, it's so evident, and they were the ones that had it very clearly labeled and outlined that I could pick it apart, right? Whereas others, they hide it a little bit differently. It teaches us to understand it, right. I'm not like, I, in fact, I'm not going to make a, this is not a doctrinal statement, but I believe there's many in the Mormon church who are genuinely deceived, and I believe we will see many Mormons in heaven, not based on their belief in this, but in their belief in Jesus Christ, the actual person of Jesus Christ, okay? But that's not a doctrinal statement, that's not a stance of the salt mine, that's just my personal belief, I believe there's a lot of deception going on within the Mormon church. As you can see clear, the way that they, they label things, it's very deceptive. It's, it's uh, twisting. Yeah, I'm not going to judge any person. That's not my job. That's God's job, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's historically the stance we are not a... I, I'm not saying I believe that there's thousands of ways to Christ. There's one way to Jesus Christ. There's one way to heaven. Um, but that way is the person of Jesus Christ, not, um, not anything else. Yeah, we're talking about theology and doctrine. We're not talking about judging the hearts of men or judging different people you run across. This is primarily for you and how you can, as things are given to you, as things come into your sphere of influence, you can break it down, you can parse it out and understand it. And there are many of us in here with Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, as family members and friends, and this is not a call to disparage them, but to love them in their deception because they are genuinely deceived. Right? <clears throat> so, I was going somewhere before that, and I don't remember where I was going. Anyways. Huh? Home? Almost done. One final point. 
and this is just to highlight everything we've said, in Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah writes, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Other translations say will not be in vain. The cornerstone is that piece of the foundation that's the strongest, has all the weight of the structure, rests on the cornerstone. Another stone like it is the keystone in a bridge or an archway. The keystone is that piece up at the front. You know, in uh, Greek and Roman architecture and modern architecture too, you know, you have the bridge and all the stones are put and they all kind of are waiting. You put the keystone in and they all fall into place and it all holds together and it is architecturally sound, engineering or the engineering properties mean that it's going to all sit together correctly. Without that, the whole thing falls down. That's what Jesus is. The whole Bible is the whole cornerstone, the keystone of not just the Bible, not just our faith, but the entire universe is the person of Jesus Christ. And the core idea of Jesus Christ is that he is 100% God, 100% 100% man. He uniquely has these characteristics. We as humans cannot achieve those characteristics. Jesus is uniquely 100% God, 100% man. He is the only being in the universe that has this attribute. Nothing else, nobody else. He is the best. He is the one who is able to do this alone. We are not able to achieve or obtain any level of divinity as Christ has. These attributes are uniquely his alone. When you make that clear, because the Mormons kind of lead you to believe that you can. The Bible has sufficient evidence to probe and show the truth of Jesus Christ. Also, one other point on we can't achieve or obtain. If Jesus Christ was just created by God to be this figure, then he can create another one. Well, that's not possible. Jesus is the only one ever, past, present, future. The Bible, the Word of God, the 66 books we have here, has sufficient evidence to probe, to probe, I don't know why I put probe, (laughs) to show the truth of Jesus Christ. Prove, prove, prove is the word. Prove and show the truth of Jesus Christ. The B and the V are next to each other. I'm sorry. The Bible has sufficient evidence. We do not need anything more than the Word of God to show the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Okay? And I'm not one, as I talked about, we do not worship the Bible. We worship Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the final word. He's the final verdict. But his word is complete. So we have everything we need here. Another point, and we'll talk about this a lot more when we talk about the divinity of God. Jesus Christ is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and he's simultaneously a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's interesting. That presents all kinds of things because while Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, the Holy Spirit is not 100% God and 100% man, and the Father is not 100% God and 100% man. It is just Jesus. That presents some interesting things. A lot of things we have to take on faith and a lot of things we have to hold carefully. Are you going to get into that? Yes. Yes, I am. Well, I'm going to try to get into it <laughs> as best I can. Jesus Christ is the very center and foundation of our faith. Without him, our faith is for naught and fails. As we went through 
that Mormon ideology, one thing I don't know if you picked up on, but Jesus was kind of secondary. Like he kind of was just this, I don't know, he, he, he wasn't the point of all of it. Whereas for us, he is the point of all of it, period. Even our own selves, our own salvation is secondary to the glory and supremacy of Christ. And that's a big difference, I think, than some of these other extra-biblical Christian cults. He's fully God, fully present in man. Or full, man, he's fully God and fully man all the time. All right, next week we are going to begin a discussion of the humanity of Christ, that fully man part, specifically beginning with the virgin birth and the importance of the virgin birth and also the reason why Jesus needs to be fully man to accomplish the purposes of salvation. As we're talking about Revelation in the letters to the churches in the first chapters of Revelation, one of the things Jesus got really frustrated with the churches was how wrong they got him a lot of the time. He was not politically correct. Right. Yeah, he pointed it out. He was not careful about pointing it out. He was like, nope, this is, this is truth. This is reality. So, yeah. And for those of you who, just a reminder, I am getting the majority, I mean, the majority of my information is coming specifically from this book, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. I'm specifically using the second edition. If you'd like to, we're not going like word for word through it, and we're not going chapter by chapter. I'm just getting pulling a lot from here. This is a great resource if you would like to kind of follow along. And there's a workbook to go with it. Great book. It's not very expensive on Amazon. And it's not that hard to read. He actually, at the end of every chapter, he has like a worship song, and it's kind of cool. But Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. So any questions? Yeah, he says he finds confusing our capacity to screw things up. That, you know, that's so important. And, and one of the things I didn't get to in the, the, the article on Mormonism, but one of the things he says is he says, we reject the counsels of the church, which to me is really foolish because, yeah, I may disagree with some of these church fathers in some aspects, but the... We believe that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We believe that he is the same Holy Spirit, that the same Holy Spirit living in me lived in Peter, lived in Paul. So I can learn a lot from these church fathers. I can learn a lot from all of us together. And so one of the built-in stopgaps for our capacity to screw things up is the church itself, each other. Um, and that is crucial to having a correct understanding. If I try to do this by myself, it's going to get screwed up. And that was part of the problem with things like Mormonism, all those heresies, is they took the word of one man and then his followers after that, as opposed to a multitude of voices, a multitude of, of you know, checks and balances upon each other. That's, you know, one of the reasons why we believe America is the best form of government, because there's checks and balance, or there should be checks and balances on each other, right? Exactly. And, and the reason why that works is the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that he can speak to you just as much as he can speak to me, just as much as he can speak to you. And that's, and also, furthermore, we, there's unity in that, and we do not believe 
specifically our theology here and a lot of good Christian theology, as much as we are ministers and we have some authority, I don't have authority like the Pope. I don't have authority like a king, right? You believe what you believe. I can't change that. I can't demand that you believe, right? And so you each have your, your ways of thinking. Exactly. That's why we have the Word of God. So, yeah. But yes, there's a massive capacity to screw things up. Amen. Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are, the person of Jesus Christ that you have presented to us in the gospel, that you have presented to us in the Bible, and that we know personally through our relationship, through the Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for you. We thank you for all you do in our lives. Give us a wonderful week. In Jesus' name, amen.